Pull up a chair, turn up the volume, it's time for another episode of Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they wanted to be, the movie star they wanted to marry, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. With any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show, and if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Bet card. If you happen to be an author and you think your writing career can withstand a guest appearance on the show, feel free to stalk me on Facebook or Twitter. You found the show, so finding me can't be that hard. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. He's the son of a Navy helicopter pilot who chased great white sharks as a marine biologist before becoming a patent lawyer who has flown millions of miles on commercial aircraft and spent countless hours in airports around the world while litigating multi-million dollar cases for high-tech companies. He has degrees from Duke University and Notre Dame hanging on his office wall in San Diego where he lives with his wife and children. And he's the author of a hot new release called Take Off, which has more than 350 top-notch reviews on Amazon. Best-selling thriller suspense author Joseph Reed joins us on the show today. Joe, thanks for setting aside the time. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, thank you so much for thinking of me, Mark. I'm looking forward to it as well. The story seemed really interesting. I was reading your background and your bio and, and about your world that you live in from day to day. And I just have to ask, what airport are you in right now and how long's the layover? <laughs> I'm actually I'm sitting in my office in San Diego today. But as soon as Monday, I'll be in I think it's four different airports as I connect uh, across the world to go to China for a few days for business. All right. Well, we'll try to get you out of here before Monday, so you're not late getting to the terminal on that one. But I really do appreciate you setting aside the time. I know that your days are busy, and they go by at a rapid pace, as does this novel. It's high-octane action. It's celebrity glamour. It's endless possibilities for danger. And I've just pulled up a comfy chair, and I want you to introduce us to Takeoff. Sure. Uh, you know, I think you nailed it. It's it's the story of an air marshal uh, named Seth Walker, uh, and he's converted to a new role. He's going to be uh, an airborne detective, if you will, solving crimes that happen in and around aviation. And so this is his first adventure. He gets assigned what, what looks to be a routine case, uh, guarding, uh, bodyguarding a teen uh, pop singer. Uh, on a cross-country flight from JFK to LAX. Uh, but when they get to LAX, uh, a gang of uh, machine gun-toting gunmen are waiting for them, uh, and that sets them off on the run. And so Walker has to has to keep the girl safe uh, while figuring out who's trying to kill her and why. Uh, and you know, the title takeoff was definitely meant as a double entendre about the about the speed and the action inside the book. One part of your bio that caught my attention was the part that you confessed that you spend a lot of time in airports. And for me, <laughs> I just want just enough of a layover to sprint from Terminal A to Terminal C. I don't want time to lose my ticket. I actually worry about that, that I'll get there and not be able to 
get on the plane because I can't find my boarding pass. Your main character, Seth Walker, as you said, was an air marshal, and he's kind of stepped away from that. It seems like he's trying to find something that's a little less hectic. He stepped away from his life on the plane to become an investigator. Is that transition based somehow in your own personal experiences on any level? I think his I think his experience uh, and his comfort level in and around airports and airplanes is something that that I've drawn from my own life. I, you know, I've I've flown uh, it, I'm up to 1.6 million miles on American, um, and that's just one carrier. So I spend a decent amount of time in airports and, and a decent amount of time on aircraft. So when you do that, I think compared to you know some people who might just fly once or twice a year. Um, a lot of the a lot of the background noise, the, the the worries about getting through security or finding your gate, a lot of that stuff melts away, and it lets you sort of see what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and that was uh, that was really my experience as I started thinking about writing this book and writing about an air marshal. Was I spent a lot of time sitting in terminals and trying to watch you know, what doors the official people go into instead of, you know, just your everyday traveler. Um, you know, what kinds of things seem out of the ordinary if you're actually paying attention. Um, and so Walker, I think as you, as you read through takeoff, not to give too much away, there's a very good reason he's transitioning from being a, a traditional air marshal to this new role. Um, and that's, that's talked about in the book. But as he does it, I think what you hopefully come away with is his sort of bird's eye view from inside the terminal, giving you sites that you might not might not otherwise have, and and a sort of viewpoint that you might not get if you're if you're the kind of person who just you know travels occasionally. All right, so that's interesting. The info you just gave me there. Number one. I can cross U.S. Marshal off the list because you were never officially a U.S. Air Marshal, correct? I can just scratch that out. We're not trying to hide that from anybody who might be listening behind the scenes, tapping my lines or anything like that. No (laughs) one does that. I have like seven and a half listeners at this stage. I'm counting the aquarium fish as the half. But what you gave me there was really intriguing in the aspect that you said you spend enough time in airports that you know what an airport should look like. So when something's kind of out of place, it stands out to you. That's really interesting. It's an interesting approach to that. Well, it's funny. I've spent enough time on planes and, and around planes. You know, air marshals travel covertly and, and they're dressed in plain clothes and you're you're not meant to spot them. I don't routinely spot them, but I have spotted them before. And you've and never so, been one. Just trying to throw that in there so people will know. Never exactly. been. I've never an been air one, but I've I've flown enough to know what to look for and and to notice them when they're there, and mm-hmm. then also notice other things about you know the sort of which doors the the staff come out of and and you know the the ideas about what might be behind them. Uh-huh. Um, and so hopefully that's something that you know if you are traveling or if you have even some approach avoidance about travel, like it sounds like you might, um, getting that kind of behind-the-scenes view might be something that's interesting to you, I hope. I think it is something that's interesting because I am self-confessed, don't like being in airports. I have to be from time to time, but for me, they're busy. I'm always 
concerned that I'm going to lose my way or not get through TSA or forget to pull out my laptop or take off my shoes or take something out of my pocket that's going to show up in the metal detector. I mean, there's a whole truckload of anxiety for me going through airports, but that's become commonplace, common ground to you to the point where you're comfortable. So that insight and that look behind the scenes, yeah, that does catch my attention here on this particular level of I'm setting it in a world that you're comfortable with, that me as the reader, all new ground. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, that's that's certainly one of the things I was shooting for. I I really think airports are becoming more and more, the, the more stuff they pack into airports, right? They, they've become a cross between, you know, a terminal and a shopping mall. And there's a bunch of restaurants. And there's there's actually an awful lot going on inside the airport. And so I think it's a natural place to sort of set some drama and and to start thinking about well geez if if this happened well you know what's the next step yeah it sounds like it's kind of its own community within a lot of people set their books in a particular city or in a particular setting if they're writing a an adventure that's out somewhere in a far-flung area of the world but it sounds like that an airport itself is one that we might walk right past and not think of it in those same terms. This is the opening salvo in the series. Book two is False Horizon. It's soon to release, from what I understand. I want to pull up a chair at the launch point of this series, since we're talking about book one. Introduce us to some of the aspects that fall into the pages of book one that kind of will become common themes as the series unfolds. We've already discovered airports and airport life, but are there other aspects in book one that we'll see kind of follow along in the series? Sure. He's in this new investigative role, and and I think in, in some ways, you know, his home base, he's based out of uh, LAX in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a house in Manhattan Beach, California, which is uh, just a couple of miles from the airport. Uh, and so that's that's obviously an airport and and a place I know pretty well, living in Southern California myself. So you'll see him in and around his headquarters, and in and around his hometown, doing things uh, of interest to him. He's a surfer, for example. And then you know, like you said, he's you'll get to see him in all different sorts of airports. And then really, the thing about aviation, I think is that it touches so many aspects of our modern life. I mean, in, in this book, Takeoff, you know, uh, it's a bodyguard story because it's about traveling from one place to another. But, you know, the, the aviation context gives you a lot of a lot of different scenarios. There's airplane crashes, there's terrorism, there's smuggling. Um, all kinds of things happen in and around air travel. Mm-hmm. And so setting a, a detective there, yeah, hopefully there'll be some familiar elements as you go from book to book. There'll be you know, sort of his cast of supporting characters that you'll see and get to know. Um, but then each book, hopefully you'll get to get to see some new things uh, and see some different aspects of aviation that you didn't see before, whether it's sort of private planes and smaller airports, you know, whether it's uh, crash investigations 
or how cargo and baggage gets handled, um, you know, all kinds of things like that. Do airports take on their own personality? I know when I travel, there are certain hubs that you end up going through. I fly through Charlotte quite often, sometimes Dallas, and living in the south, I live in the northern area of Florida, fly out of Jacksonville International Airport, and it seems like almost everything has to go to Atlanta first. So mm-hmm. whenever we leave, we always pinch Atlanta on the cheek and then go wherever, wherever we're going from there. But Charlotte seems entirely different to me. Do different airports have a different type of an environment or a theme that could be useful in storytelling? Oh, I certainly think so. I mean, each um, each airport based on the city it's in, mm-hmm. right, and, and what kind of environment it's in has some unique aspects to it. And then the way each was built uh, and and the the different things they've decided to pack into them make it different. Like you said, I, I fly through Dallas an awful lot. I'm, I'm an American Airlines guy. Mm-hmm. And so... The the terminals at Dallas, as you know, are connected by a little train that you have to ride called Skylink. Right. Um, that's totally different, for example, than if you go to LAX, where the terminals essentially, if you want to get from one terminal to another, you'd have to walk. Although there's not really a good reason to have to do that because there are these long arms that stick out from a central hub. So really, it's it's essentially sort of one big hallway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the different airports have different characters, and then their different layouts sort of lend themselves to, uh, to, to different storytelling and, and different atmospheres. One of my wife's favorite movies is a movie called Boondock Saints. I had never seen it until we actually started dating. I found it's a fantastic movie and absolutely became one of my favorites as well. But there's a scene in the movie, where Detective Paul Schmecker, who's played by Willem Dafoe, walks step-by-step through a crime scene. And there's no one else in the crime scene except those that are there to keep the tape in place and keep bystanders out of it. But finally, as he's walking little by little through this crime scene, he arrives at the front steps of a residence. He turns and he faces what would be the camera, and he screams, firefight and starts slinging his arms about in the air. Early in this book, you've got a couple of scenes in takeoff where the bullets are just flying. What was your approach to writing that scene and trying to take the reader inside the spray? Wow, that's a great question. I try in this book and and in the sequel too that you mentioned earlier, False Horizon. I try to write the most, you know, riveting action scenes I can, um, and and I'm a big fan of of action books and thriller books. It, it it's more uh, just a process, I think, of imagination. Um, you know, it, you've seen the opening chapters. The the very opening chapter of Takeoff is a firefight, and it's mm-hmm. through the baggage claim at LAX. Right. And I've stood in I've stood in that baggage claim about a million times. And so it's really just sort of uh, standing there and imagining uh, what you'd do if if you were being chased and, and running through your life, and and trying to picture trying to picture what Walker would do because um, and and this is something I'm sure we'll get into later. 
he's not me. Mm -hmm. Um, he's got his own sort of unique thought process and his own unique character. And so he sees the world differently than I do. And I, I think that's, um, in listening to some of your other interviews with other authors, I, I think that's one of the uniting threads among all of us is, is we really like putting ourselves in the headspace of somebody who is not us mm -hmm. and saying, okay, uh, how does this person see the world? And, and then what is their, what is their gut level reaction when something bad happens um, or something good happens or whatever happens in the story? And so, um, yeah, the bullets start flying and, and what Seth thinks of next is uniquely him, I think. Yeah, it's something that's always kind of caught my attention as I'm watching a scene, something along that lines, the angles, the where would the bullets come from? Where would it drive me as a person trying to escape to find safety? It's got to be something that to be able to stand within that groundwork and be familiar with it has to provide a sense of realism to what you're writing. As this book opens, Seth Walker seems to have a simple task. He's accompanying a pop star, Max Magic, to Los Angeles, and apparently he's going to turn her over to FBI officials. Has he underestimated his assignment or maybe even the young pop star that's accompanying him on the flight? Oh, uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, his his boss has looked at this assignment uh, as his first time out and said, this, you know, this, look, this looks like a cakewalk, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of flight you've done hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so absolutely, I, I think Seth has, has underestimated the mission he's about to, to undertake. And then and then Max, too, is, is an interesting character with an interesting backstory that uh, we learned throughout the course of the book. And She's got some secrets uh, that'll that'll um, come to come to haunt her and also come to haunt Seth. Characters and character development. We're going to dig into both a little bit deeper on the other side of this break. Joseph Reed is our guest. His book is Take Off. You don't want to go anywhere. Please stay tuned. I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to talk with our guest just a little bit more on the other side. Stay tuned. This is Todd Radom, author of Winning Ugly, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Cohn. You Amazon, don't you? Yeah, you do. You go to their website and you pick something out, click on it, buy it, and then you wait for a guy in a brown uniform to drop it on your doorstep. I know you do. I do that too. Hey, let me ask you a favor. The next time you're going to Amazon, would you go to my website first and use one of the Amazon links on my website to get to theirs? You see, I'm not only an author, but I'm also an Amazon affiliate. And if you would do that small favor for me, you would get the same exact shopping experience that you always do. And that same guy in the brown uniform is going to bring that same package to your doorstep. You're not going to pay a penny more. But Amazon will give me a nice little gift at the end of the month because you used my web portal to get to their site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let me be your doorway. This podcast is made possible by the gracious support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pdi and become a valued part of the show. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Thank you for listening to today's interview. I'm really enjoying the conversation with our guest, and we'll get back to it in just a second. But before we do, I wanted to remind you that I'm also an author. I've got a book on Amazon right now. It's called Push. You'll see a link for the book right here on the webpage, and if you click on it, you'll get to read some of the other reviews that are out there as well. Pick up a copy and discover why you've got no shot at ever being ordinary. Now let's get back to our show. All right, we're back with our guest, Joseph Reed. His book is called Take Off. Joe, I know that for every author, they have an online presence that is a way of getting information about themselves out to the public that want to find out and know more. And every author seems to have their own particular format that they like the best when it comes to interacting with those that are following their work. I want to give you just a moment to tell folks where they can find you online and perhaps where it's best to follow you if they want to comment or, you know, touch base with you regarding something they've read. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. So I have a website. Uh, it is josephreadbooks.com. And on there, I've got uh, a place where you can send me an email or you can sign up for my newsletter. Um, those are very reliable ways to reach me. But I do, I do frequent other social media platforms. Uh, I'm on Twitter several times a day. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. My handle is always Joseph Reed Books. So hopefully no matter what platform uh, you like to use or your listeners like to use, they can find me there. And we're going to have links to all of that right here on the episode page. If you happen to be listening via iTunes and our subscribership through iTunes is just increasing with every day. And that's a good thing, but that doesn't always get people to the website where all these links are. The website is markcombsauthor.com and Public Display of Imagination has its own little tab there that you can find all of this information to connect with the authors that join us on the program. Joe, we briefly introduced our listeners to Seth Walker in our first segment, but I want to dig a little bit deeper because as I did some reading, I found out he's got some baggage that he's dragging around, and I want to know how this dogs his steps and how it kind of factors into the decisions he makes along the way. Yeah, Walker has made this decision to change from being an air marshal to an investigator because of something that just happened in in his life. He just under underwent a a particular personal tragedy, mm-hmm. and so through the course of the book, we learn a little bit more about that and and what's going on with him, and then his guilt about that and and the other feelings he's sort of harboring. I think color his um, his relationship with Max, his desire to protect her, uh, and the lengths he'll go to to try and make sure she's safe. Interesting that you gave him a what I take to be a teenage companion in this. She seems really young. Does that really did did that become an interesting aspect to write in this book where you've got someone who is seasoned and has a lot of experience under his belt, and then someone else who has become extremely popular, kind of lives their world on the public stage, but also seems very young and all the trappings that come with it. 
in trying to think about if you're going to tell a bodyguard story, who's the most interesting person to bodyguard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, I think the fact that they are different, the fact that they're different sexes, they're different ages, they have very, very different backgrounds and, and backstories. Those do make it interesting and they make their interactions hopefully interesting. I think, you know, the the idea of not an older man, but a middle-aged guy or a, a guy in his early 30s um, escorting around uh, an attractive teenage girl, that that also opens up a whole lot of drama because here, you know, when they go on the run to escape these gunmen, they don't want to be noticed, mm-hmm. right? And so the idea that she's famous, she's attractive, and they're not necessarily the two people that you'd expect to see together means that hiding out and and avoiding detection becomes that much harder. Yeah, nice that everywhere she goes, she's recognized, right? Mm-hmm. That is the idea, yeah. One of the prime axioms in the story or in any story creation is write what you know. Aside from the airport environment and the various aspects of heavy travel, which you do, what other parts of your real-world experience weave their way into the pages of your work? That's a that's a great question, and and that is one of those you know axioms you see everywhere. And one of the questions I think you get from readers is how do you balance writing what you know, but also sort of exploring things you don't. Walker is a Navy brat to start out with, and and so am I, and so that was a, a natural sort of uh, piece of his backstory to plug in. Um, I know what it's like to to move all around as a kid and uh, and all of the the feelings that go along with that and and sort of what that brings to your adult life. He and I are very different in some ways. I mean, he's an uh, an electrical engineer, or he was before he became uh, an air marshal. So he sees things in a very uh, sort of mathematical, technical way mm-hmm. um, that I, as a former biologist, don't necessarily. But in my life as a patent lawyer, in my day job, I do work with a bunch of electrical engineers uh, and other sort of scientists and technical people. So uh, I like to think that that perspective, it it might be turned up to 11 in Walker's case, um, but I do have sort of a sense of of what that is and what it means. And then, like I said, I, you know, he's he travels in circles that I travel in terms of aviation, but also he he lives in Southern California. Um, I, I know that pretty well from from living out here for quite a few years. He has uh, a little bit of an attachment to the patent world because he patents inventions on the side and makes some money that way. And that's uh, patent law is something that I do in my daily work. And so so that's something I knew about coming in. So there's little bits and pieces that you sort of, I think, grasp out of your life and sort of plug in where they're convenient. But then there's then there's other things that, um, you know, are very, very different. Walker is covered in tattoos. And you talked about not liking <laughs> airports. I hate needles. Yeah. Needles are one of the things that I just despise most in in the world. And so the idea of sitting down and volunteering to to undergo that it just my skin crawls at the idea right um so you know so we are different and uh you know but but that's that's sort of the fun of being an author is you get to play with some things that you you don't actually do in your daily life 
Yeah, I have an easy out when it comes to tattoos. I don't have any because I change my mind way too often, and those things are permanent. <laughs> so it's like, no, I'm going to love that for a week and a half, and then I'm going to want something different. So when I finally make up my mind somewhere around age 73 to 75, I'll come see you guys, and we'll see what we can work out. But between now and then, yeah, Blank Canvas is where I'm staying. As a prime character, Seth is on his own journey through this series, and we've already met Max Magic a little bit. You've introduced us to her. Who else might the reader meet within the pages of Take Off that kind of have some staying power as the key characters of the series develop? One of the the key characters in this book, uh, someone you'll get to know a little bit and who will definitely recur in future books, is Seth's best friend. His name is Dan Shen. Mm-hmm. He's a patent lawyer. Uh, and so he started out just being the guy who patented Seth's inventions that he comes up with on the side. But they are friends and, and they do socialize. And so he he's a, a sounding board for Seth. He's a former military. So they, they have they have those kinds of ideas and aspects in common. Um, and so they spend a decent amount of time together and, and he helps Seth out in in certain key ways when, when Seth needs an ally and doesn't always know where to turn. There are some other people that Seth works with inside the Air Marshal Service. Uh, so you'll see his boss, Vincent Lavornia, over and over again. Um, you'll see some of the other money penny like characters around his office, you know, from time to time. The idea is that, you know, he'll bop into headquarters here and there in every adventure and you'll, you'll get to see and, uh, an array of characters that you've met before. Um, and maybe learn a little bit more about, you know, one or two of them in each of the books. You said you spent a lot of time observing things in airports. I got the, uh, the idea that you're kind of a people observer as well. Do you catch yourself at times seeing someone in an airport picking up something, a personality trait or an aspect of the way they carry themselves, the way they're dressed, something they do and feel like, okay, that might work into a criminal profile somewhere along the line. Where do your criminals come from? Where do the bad guys develop? <laughs> um, I don't know that the bad guys are always the ones I see in airports. In airports, you do get to people watch a decent bit. Mm-hmm. And and I do find it's a great way to, when you've got the time, when you're not hustling through the terminal, if you can sit there at a gate and, and watch the people interact and watch how they behave, um, I do think it's an interesting place to sort of pick up on on character studies. In terms of bad guys, because takeoff is is a mystery, I'm not going to give away who the bad guys are, but I can tell you that I think the most interesting bad guys are, uh, and this is probably cliche to say at this point, but uh, the ones who are in some ways everyday people, and in some ways, just like us, they don't see themselves as the villain in their story. You know, mm-hmm. they see themselves as the hero. And so they're doing the wrong things, but maybe they're, they think they're doing them for the right reasons, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so my hope would be that, you know, as you, as you read through the book and you discover some of the bad guys that Seth ultimately runs into and has to chase down, um, that they feel realistic and they feel complex. They're not just sort of one-note bad guys. Yeah, it's always interesting to me that when you look at any type of a villain, 
be it the cartoonish villain from the Batman serial or the most elaborate villain that you would see developed in a movie script or a series of novels, those villains always have one thing in common, and that is that they can justify what they're doing. It has a purpose, it has a reason, and for them it's right. They're not doing anything wrong. It has a a, a reason to be, and they feel like that that's kind of the driving force. Can Can we throw that cloak on your villains and let them wear it? Does that fit, or am I kind of overarching there? No, I think you've hit it on the head. I think, like I said, I think the villains see themselves as the hero in their own story. I think they they have obstacles they're trying to overcome, and they think they're they think they're doing the logical thing to overcome them. And and you know their actions are things that make us recoil and and you know make you want them to sort of suffer the consequences for it. But in their own psychology, it has to make sense. Otherwise, otherwise, it's not a very good character, and, and I don't think the story is necessarily as compelling. Exactly. With any suspense thriller, time and timing are also essential intangibles in the fabric. The pace has to move or the reader gets bored. Suspense has to build or the pulse never quickens. How do you manage those two aspects in your real world that keeps you hopping, that keeps you busy? That's an interesting angle on it. No one's ever asked me about that. I do think that what I do as a lawyer definitely informs my writing and the pace of my writing. So I'm a litigator primarily. You know, I end up uh, litigating cases and, and the way litigation works is you know, each day you go out and you try and get a little piece of evidence here or a little piece of evidence there. You you get a document or you go take a witness's statement. And at the end of the day, in front of the judge or the jury, you have to take all those pieces and assemble them into a picture and try and tell a cohesive story to the court or the jury about what happened and why and why your client should win. And so it's this assembly of different pieces. And really, a, a book is kind of that, I think, in reverse. As the author, I know what the end story is. I, I know what the ending is. I know who did it. And so then what I've got to do is I've got to break, I've got to take that picture and I've got to smash it into a million different pieces. And I've got to take those pieces and I've got to sprinkle them through the book so that you discover them and you start putting them together and the characters start putting them together. And so, you know, the, the pace is obviously different in terms of, you know, my, my life as a litigator is not necessarily, you know, breakneck, you know, running from bullets. Um, there's lots of long hours and, and long days and there's some, there's some excitement here and there, but it's, it's a lot of paper pushing, but, but the idea that you're, you're on a clock and you've got to reach for all these disparate pieces and put them together. I think, I think that is, is something that definitely ties my two worlds. What's the blend between structure and what I picture in a thriller is the ground kind of dissolving out from under the character as he's trying to get his footing. Is, is there 
a blend there that you kind of look for to where your character is kind of on solid ground with what he's doing, but at the same time, he's always reaching for the next way to break his fall as everything kind of falls out from under him. Yeah, I mean, I I think as the author, everyone's process is different. So I don't mean to I don't mean to contradict what what other folks have told you about how they work. You know, in plotting out my stories and thinking about structure, I know certain beats that I really want to hit, certain scenes or certain moments that I really want to get to when I start the book. Mm-hmm. And then in between those, how you get from A to B or B to C is where, you know, some of the magic happens. Right. And so I think what happens is you're, you're at point C and you're looking ahead to, okay, point D is over there. The natural way to get there is a straight line. But then you start messing with your characters and you start throwing challenges at them. And, and that's really where the fun is of, of seeing how they break out of it and how they overcome those challenges. And, and I think that's really, you know, sometimes where the best where the best drama comes from or the most exciting moments where you sort of grab your chair and you say, oh, my gosh, how's he going to get out of this one is when you just, you know, you've thrown everything in the kitchen sink at the character to try and stymie them. In your real world, given the choice between structure and adventure, which brings you the most comfort? Which do you look for the most? Oh, I'm I'm in real life. I'm very much a structure guy. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a scientist. I'm. I'm all lists and checklists and checkboxes. I'm I'm not the adventuresome type like the people who live in my books. But I read that you chase great white sharks. The personal side of Joseph Reed. We're going to get into that on the other side of this break. Please stay tuned. It's time to take just another quick break. We're going to come back after this, and we're going to go behind the curtains with our guests. Ask a few questions they're not expecting. Off-the-wall questions, off-the-wall answers. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. This is Brad Parks, the author of Closer Than You Know, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. So it's gonna be forever, or it's gonna go down in flames. And I'll write your name. This podcast is made possible by the gracious support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash PDI and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash PDI. Your support moves the needle. Okay, it's audience participation time. What wakes you up in the morning? I'll tell you exactly what I wake up to. That's right, silence, nothing, nada, squadoosh in its purest form. For some reason, I just wake up when I'm supposed to wake up. And yeah, I'm not sure how that works either. If I needed an alarm clock, though, I'm sure your average beat, buzz, or musical riff just wouldn't do it for me. No, I've got a few special requests in mind. You can find Come On, Arise, and Win and other Saturday morning ramblings on my website under the blog tab at markcombsauthor.com. Ever feel like you're spinning your wheels, grinding your gears, 
Or just beating your head against a brick wall that's not even aware it's being relentlessly pounded? I've been there and done that many times over. I bet you have too. If you sometimes feel that your best efforts are producing minimal results, then the second book in my motivational series will probably strike a chord with you. It's called Don't Forget Your Cape. Pick up a copy on Amazon and let me introduce you to your inner superhero. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with our guest, Joseph Reed. His book is Take Off, and it's an action-packed thriller. I've read a lot of good things about it. It's got a lot of great reviews on Amazon. Joe, for most authors, by the time one book gets released and they're busy trying to promote it on one hand, they're already eyeballs deep into the next project. I know the next book on this series, False Horizon, You've already told us that a release date for that one's kind of imminent. What can you tell us about that book and maybe what else is on your drawing board? You, you've nailed it. I mean, I don't think readers always understand the lag time that happens when, when you put the these manuscripts into the machine, but it does take an awful long time for the publishers to, to do all their magic and and make things beautiful and come up with a beautiful cover and, and all the things that go along with that. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm right now I'm in the middle of marketing takeoff, which just debuted. And then I'm also at the same time, just finishing up the manuscript for the second book, false horizon. Uh, that'll go in to the publisher in the next week or two. In the meantime, I've also, uh, I've got a bunch of signings set up you know, around my hometown of San Diego and then Southern California. I'll be in a few different places. And then I'll also be at Thriller Fest, which is coming up in July in New York City. So if anybody's going to that, they can find me at that. I'll be part of the debut authors panel. I think a lot of our listeners will be going to that. And it's something that I've got on my calendar. Hopefully I can make that a part of the annual experience for the show and the program and be able to be around and meet some new authors there. Looks like a fabulous event scheduled We teased on the other side the aspects of timing and time in a suspense thriller. Let's revisit that for just a few minutes because I want to ask how you not only gauge the pace of your story, but how much of a challenge is it to keep something tucked away for later, something that you want to bring out, but maybe the timing just isn't quite right yet. I think you've talked to a lot of thriller authors because I think you've you've nailed one of the big challenges in writing these books right is is you're sprinkling out a trail of breadcrumbs and and how fast do you do that um, and how do you make sure that the the pages keep turning but it's also just not gratuitous action without a point that that doesn't get somewhere so you know you, you do as you plot these things out sort of chapter by chapter I think you do have to be cognizant that you know each chapter you do sort of want to end on something that's going to make the reader want to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also need to to give the characters some time to think and absorb what they've what they've seen and what they've learned, and to lick their wounds a little bit. Because as you know from my books, my my characters tend to tend to take a lot of injuries as we go along. So. Um, you know, I think there's a natural sort of pace to it where, you know, every, you know, every so often you've got to sprinkle in an action scene, but then in between you've, you've got to give them a quiet moment or two to, to sort of reflect. 
you guys and your your cliffhangers and your hooks for the next chapter and your seed plots that get someone to turn the next page, I want to let you know how much sleep you're causing my wife to lose as she's <laughs> sitting here reading these books. She should be turning out the nightlight, rolling over and getting some rest because she's got to go to work the next morning. But no, she's got to find out what happens to the character next. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. She appreciates it. You guys are doing a great job. (laughs) I just want to commend you on all that. You said you do most of your writing early in the morning. Describe for you your ideal writing environment. What really gets it going for you as you sit down at the keyboard and begin to piece together? You know, it's not so much uh, an atmosphere thing. I I get up early in the morning because, as you mentioned, I've got a family. um, I've got a day job as a lawyer. And so I've got a lot of demands on my time later in the day. So really what I tend to do is I tend to get up at four in the morning Mm -hmm. when when it's dark and everyone else is asleep. And I come into my office and I sit down and that's really my prime writing time is, is when it's dark and nobody's going to bother me. So really it's, it's, you know, me and the computer and a cup of coffee and not much else. I, you know, I find that the internet and the phone and my email and all that stuff is, is a lot of distraction. So and the more I can minimize all that and just, just get down to just me and the computer, uh, the better off I am. I'm an early morning person too. I don't know. I've never been able to sleep late. My wife, on the other hand, she's not an early morning person. She doesn't want to. And, you know, I joke about it being the staying up late to read. But when I wake up, I just jump up and go about my day. And for her, it's a process. It takes time for, you know, all the juices to get flowing and her to get busy about the day. It sounds like for you, it's like I'm up. There's stuff to do. Let's get with it. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that, uh, you know, cre- creativity is highest when you first wake up. Mm-hmm. And so I think if I have a routine, I think what it is, is before I go to sleep, I really try and think about what I'm going to write the next day. What scene is coming up? What am I excited about? What uh, what moments am I looking forward to in the next few pages that I'm going to write? And then I go to sleep. And the hope is that, you know, in in dream space, you know, some of that stuff works itself out. And then when I wake up, you know, I do. I want to get right on the page and start start writing. If if we're talking about writing from scratch, I want to get there and get started as soon as I can, because I do find that a lot of times if I get started right away, a lot of that sort of dream space is still in my head and, and it can just sort of spill out through my fingers. Editing's different. I I can edit just about any time of day, but writing from scratch, I find I'm I'm really much better early in the morning than than any other time. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with you on that. I, I've got to get down the first initial thoughts that were in my mind when I woke up before the coffee's even brewing. I I've got to get to the keyboard and get those down. Otherwise, they're gone, and and uh, I I don't want to lose that freshness early in the morning. I teased on the other side that you chased great white sharks. You've mentioned that you were a marine biologist before you became a litigation lawyer. That seems two polar opposites. You got to walk <laughs> me through that. Now you're 
an attorney, you deal with patent litigation, but take me back to the great white shark adventure. I want to know that side of the story. Well, the, the handy the handy connection is, you know, I went from working with sharks to working with lawyers, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the easy joke that you, you tell at cocktail parties. Yeah, there you um, go. You know, the the longer answer is, yeah, I started out. I was always going to be a research marine biologist. That was that was my goal from the time I was a little tiny kid. Um, and so, you know, I got a degree in biology, and I went and I started my PhD. And I was, my research was um, about hearts and blood and things like that. But, but fish were my models. And, and in particular, I worked on sharks. And, you know, I really was interested in questions about how shark biology lets the sharks do things in the environment in which they live. And so, uh, yeah, I did do some, um, some work on great whites here in San Diego. There's always been a, a large degree of fascination with, with great whites, their migratory patterns. Uh, they're very mysterious. And so especially back then, before the age of satellite tags, people didn't know exactly where they went um, and what they did when they were there. And so, you know, we were out and we were um, you know, trying to catch some, you know, really for a lot of just basic biological measurements and things like that, we'd take samples to to analyze for genes. We'd take blood samples, things like that, um, just to see what we could figure out in terms of basic biology. And then, you know, it was really, I hated to leave science because science was something that I'd always wanted to do. But at that point in time, you know, there weren't as many jobs as, as I really hoped there would be in science. And I had a young family and stuff. And so I had to look around and sort of ask myself, okay, uh, you know, is there someplace else I could I could sort of get a more stable paycheck? So, you know, I, I ended up going to law school because research and writing, you know, the same kind of skills you bring to science, you know, in some ways you, you bring to law. And so uh went to law school and, and became a, a patent lawyer where, you know, I deal with science and technology on a daily basis. My clients are are tech companies either in um, you know computers or electronics or biotech or medical devices, and so I, I get to keep my keep my fingers in technology and and keep sort of cutting edge on that stuff. Um, I just approach it from a different angle now. I kind of want to ask you about Jaws, but I kind of don't want to ask you about Jaws because. There's a part of me that's afraid that you're going to go all marine biologist on me and and and, and kind of tear down the. I don't want to lose the music. I don't want to lose the background music that puts the goosebumps on the arm. So I'm going to pretend that I asked you about Jaws and that you gave me a great answer, and I can still be afraid of the shark, even when I'm sitting in my living room. I do want to move along to something else, though, because it's on my drawing board, and i got to give you a chance to get creative on the fly here. The game Clue is one of the most popular board games of all time. But personally, I think it could do with a few new suspects. So I'm going to ask for your help. I'm going to give you a category of fictitious personalities And I want you to identify a suspect and give them a creative weapon. Are you up for that challenge? Uh, Sure, we'll try it. (laughs) 
I All thought right. you were going to quiz me on the names of the Clue characters, because I actually pr- can probably do fairly well on that. Oh, but. really? Okay. Well, I, th- I think they need to get replaced. So l- let's get your favorite Clue characters right up front. Give me the three gentlemen that are in Clue. Uh, well, I always play as Colonel Mustard. Okay. Because his starting position, to me, is the best. But there's also Mr. Green, and mm-hmm. there's Professor Plum. All right. And then our ladies? Let's see. There's Miss Scarlet. There's Mrs. White. Uh-huh. Um, and why am I blanking on the last one? The last one's Miss Peacock. Ah, yes, indeed. I think we need a fresh new game of Clue. I want some new characters. Of course, I want them to be whimsical people that I'll recognize and can play with. I don't think this will ever get past uh, compliance on any level, but I'm going to give you a chance <laughs> to help me create it. Our first category I want you to pull a character from is cartoon characters, and I'm going to give you the Bugs Bunny crowd, the Flintstone crowd, and the Scooby-Doo circle. You can pull one character out of that and put them in Clue. Who's it going to be? I mean, if you're talking about the most entertaining killer out of all of those cartoons, I think it has to be Yosemite Sam. Ah, okay. And you would have to give him pistols? Yeah, I mean, that that would be his weapon of choice, I think. But he didn't have a revolver, did he? Did he have a revolver or did he have a reloader? I can't remember. He had a great mustache. I thought he had six guns, six but guns. I, I, okay. could be, I could be wrong. I know he had a great mustache. That stands out to me. All right, so we've got Yosemite Sam, and we're going to give him six guns. Let's go to our next category. It's comic strips, and I'm going to give you the world of Peanuts, the world of Archie, and the world of Dilbert. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, I think of all those folks, I'd go with Peppermint and Patty. Really? She's probably the toughest. She yeah. looks a little shifty. Yeah, I don't think you'd want to mess with Peppermint Patty if she wanted to take you out. All right, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I want to trust her, but I'm not sure I can. Uh, is there a particular weapon of choice you might give her? I seem to remember that she had a hockey stick huh? in at least one of the Charlie Brown cartoons. So I would give her a hockey stick, and she'd sort of, I think, beat you to death with it. I like that. I like that. Okay, so we've got Yosemite Sam, Peppermint Patty. I love where this is going. I think this is totally marketable. And as a patent lawyer, you're the guy to get behind this scheme. (laughs) Our next one is TV sitcoms. I'm going to give you Friends, Seinfeld, or The Big Bang Theory. Who gets on the board? I would probably go with Friends. That was sort of in my era. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you're going to ask me which of them. Um, I, I guess I'd probably go with Phoebe just because she might be the most entertaining. Oh, really? Okay. So what do we give Phoebe as a weapon? I mean, isn't she going to use her guitar and sort of smack you over the head with it? Ah, very nicely done. I like that. I like that a lot. I always, when I would see Tom Selleck in that, I always felt like he was just a touch out of place. I I think I would put him as, you know, Mr. Mustache and give him a wood chipper or something. But uh, I like what we've come up with here. We've got three. I'm going to stow them away on a hard drive for later. And we may see if we can't get creative with this down the road and turn everybody that listens to this show into a fan of the new game of Clue. One afternoon, you go to the mailbox. You find a shoebox-sized package with your name on it. 
It's wrapped in plain brown wrapping paper tied with a string, and there's no return address. You're thinking it's a prank, and instinctively you look up and down the street, but you don't see any movement. You take the package back to the house, but decide that it might be best to open this one out on the back porch. Upon opening the package, you find a huge lock and three keys, and a note that says each key will unlock a different mystery, and all the keys will work, but you can only open the lock one time. The keys are labeled The Mystery of What's Buried on Oak Island, The Mystery of Alien Life Forms, and The Mystery of Unknown Life Forms here on Earth, such as Bigfoot, Sea Monsters, and other urban legends. Which key do you use to open the lock? That's interesting. Uh, if if it was me in you know sort of diving into the adventure, I'd probably do the Oak Island one. Okay. Um, you know, I I was more of a sci-fi guy back when I was a kid, and the the science aspect of life on Earth would interest me. But but in terms of if I was trying to create a thriller, you know, the the genre that I'm mucking around in now, I think I'd go with just the straight Oak Island mystery. All right. Tell me a story about meeting someone in an airport that you never expected to meet. Mm. So I was on I was on a trip and I was really not thinking I was going to talk to anybody that day because I would I it had been like a red eye flight and uh, I was tired and I had a, a day's worth of growth on my face and stuff like that. And I ended up sitting next to a woman who was impeccably dressed. She was, she was exactly uh, the opposite of me that day. And so I'm sitting there next to her and she pulls out uh, a bunch of scientific articles. And I can't help looking over her shoulder at what she's reading. And, you know, she's kind of looking at me suspiciously, like, why is this strange man with the day's worth of growth reading over my shoulder? Mm-hmm. Um, so we struck up a conversation and it turned out that, uh, she was a biologist just like me. This is back when I was uh, a scientist. And so she was on the East coast working on, uh, marine animals and I was on the West coast and we ended up having a, a big lengthy talk about the different things we were working on and how our, how our research was sort of similar. But you know, starting out, you never would have thought that either of us had anything in common or that, uh, you know, certainly that we worked in the same industry or anything like that. Joseph Reed, ladies and gentlemen, Joseph Reed. His book is called Take Off. That's book one in the Seth Walker series. You'll see the links posted on the episode page at markcombsauthor.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you, Mark. This was a blast for me, too. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk with authors about their work, and hopefully you're enjoying the weekly conversations as well. If you are, please do me and them a favor and tell someone else about the show. Our listening audience continues to grow because fans of the show are sharing links to the episodes on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms. If you'd like to follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, the easiest way to find us is by clicking on one of the links near the bottom of each episode page. What's that? You're listening to the show on iTunes? Very cool. 
Thanks for subscribing and following us from week to week. You can find the episode webpages by dropping in at markcombsauthor.com and clicking on the public display of imagination link under the podcast tab. You'll find all kinds of great info there about our guests, including direct links to connect with them or review and purchase their books on Amazon. And while you're on Amazon, why not just go crazy and order a few other things as well? Half the stuff in our house came in a cardboard box with a big smile on the side of it, and it got dropped off on the doorstep by a guy in a brown suit. If Amazon doesn't have it, let's be honest, you probably don't need it. We've got another great guest lined up for next week. Thanks for supporting the show through Patreon. Remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. 2 a.m. and I'm still awake writing a song If I get it all down on paper It's no longer inside of me Threatening the life it belongs to And I feel like I'm naked in front of the crowd Cause these words are my diary Screaming out loud And I know that you'll use them However you want to But you can't jump the track We're like cars on a cable And our life's like an hourglass Glued to the table No one can find the real wine But now it's saying it